This is episode number 985 with New York Times bestselling author Maria Konnikova. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Edward Norton once said, life like poker has an element of risk. It shouldn't be avoided. It should be faced. And former U.S. General David Schaup said, the commonest mistake in history is underestimating your opponent. Happens at the poker table all the time. Welcome to this episode. My guest today has quite the resume. Harvard undergrad, Columbia PhD in psychology, New York Times bestselling author, and New Yorker contributing writer. But listen to this. A few years ago, she decided to become a professional poker player to see if her ability to understand how people think and act could translate to cards. She actually didn't know how many cards were in a deck before she started. This is a crazy story. But now she's become a champion with more than $300,000 in earnings in a couple years. She also realized that poker taught her as much about life as any psychology class. Now she's documented her journey in a new book, The Biggest Bluff. And we had a fascinating conversation about what makes people tick and how you can use psychology to your advantage in life. In this episode, we discuss why your decision-making process is far more important than the outcome of those decisions, how to become aware of your emotional triggers and establish routines to prevent them from harming you, what you can do to win in any interpersonal negotiation and so much more. If you find this inspirational and helpful in any way, share this with someone who needs to hear it. Again, you have the power to change and improve someone's life by sharing this message. Just copy and paste the link wherever you're listening to it, or you can post the link lewishouse.com slash 985 with all the resources there as well. And a quick reminder, make sure to go to Apple Podcast and click on that subscribe button on the School of Greatness podcast and leave us a rating and review as that really helps us spread the message of greatness to more people. And now without further ado, let's dive into this episode with the one, the only, Maria Konnikova. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host 
Welcome, everyone, to the School of Greatness podcast. I am so excited about who we have coming on. Maria Konnikova is here, and you have an incredible resume. You went to Harvard undergrad, and then you got a psychology PhD from Columbia. You're a best-selling author and contributing writer to The New Yorker. And with your successful career, you decided, I want to go play poker, even though I have no clue what I'm doing in poker. I've never played before. And I'm going to go be a professional poker player, win a bunch of money, and learn social dynamics and human psychology from the pros. And it's fascinating what you learned. And I'm curious, why did you choose this social experiment? I became really interested in the notion of luck and the role that luck plays in our lives and how we can learn to really spot luck and to tell the difference between what we control, what we don't, where our skill ends and where kind of luck and chance mm-hmm. begins. Mm-hmm. And I decided I really wanted to write my next book about that. Um, that's, that's not a book. That's just a broad question. And so I did a lot of reading, which is what I always do whenever I'm starting something new. And so I decided to pick up um, John von Neumann's Theory of Games, which is the foundational book of game theory. And I didn't understand most of it, uh, found it very boring, um, but learned that John von Neumann was a poker player and that not only was he a poker player, but that poker inspired game theory. That he, so here's this guy um, who is one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. John von Neumann is the father of the computer. Like we wouldn't, you and I would not be doing this right now if it weren't for him. Also one of the fathers of the hydrogen bombs. So a lot of different sorts of uh, creations and game theory, um, but just brilliant guy. And he wrote that poker was the most perfect analogy for strategic decision makers that he'd ever come across. And he actually thought that if you could solve poker, if you could solve No Limit Hold'em, which is what I ended up playing, you'd solve life basically. You'd have wow. a roadmap for the most complex human decisions. Because- Is this, is this why I'm a failure? Because I haven't figured out poker yet? Yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly right. No, so, well, no one has solved poker yet. Poker is actually oh. still um, an, an unsolved game. But, and it's kind of at the forefront of AI research, they use it as the golden standard um, Mm -hmm. of AI because no one has solved it. But he said, you know, poker is a game of incomplete information. So unlike chess, which you can see the whole board, you can see all the pieces and there's always a right move, right? Mm -hmm. If you give me enough computational power, I can solve it for you. I can tell you exactly where I'm supposed to move. Mm. But poker, you can't do that because there are the cards that you have and I don't see them. I don't know what cards you have and you don't know what cards I have and we don't know what cards are still coming in the deck. So, you know, it's not a chessboard. All of a sudden half the pieces are obscured and then it's a game of people, of intention, of trying to figure out what do you know? What do I know? It's a game of information and that's starting to look like life. That's Mm -hmm. starting to look like actual decision-making. I was really intrigued and I thought this poker thing sounds interesting. Let me read a little bit about it. I started reading about it and just something clicked. I thought, this is my book. This is what I want to write about. Why don't I learn the game? Why don't I get someone really, really good to teach me? Because one of the things I've learned throughout my life is it's always much better if you have someone who's really good on your side. Coaching is good. Mentors are good. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've learned to always ask for help. I think it's the most powerful thing we can do is to say, I don't get this. I don't know. Help me. Teach me. Um, And so I decided 
let me find someone to teach me and let me spend a year, it was supposed to be a year, um, learning this and just use my journey as a way into these questions of skill versus chance um, and decision making and trying to answer all of those philosophical queries that I had before I got yeah. started. And I didn't know if I was going to be good. I didn't know what was going to happen. I wasn't planning to become a professional player. I was just planning to kind of do this experiment. Research experiment. Yeah. Research experiment. Um, Did you have a certain amount of money? Okay, here's $10,000. And once I lose it, I'm done? Or <laughs> No, no. So I was always, I was going to play in, I was planning to use a part of my book advance to, wow. to finance this. And I was going to play, uh, eventually the end point was going to be the main event, which costs $10,000. Yeah. Yep. The main event of the World Series of Poker. But so I got Eric Seidel, who's considered one of the greatest players of all time, to agree to take me on as a student. Wow. Um, I'm still talk about luck. One of the luckiest things ever, because I think he was very interested in the project and in the note and in its implications for poker that I could potentially bring poker to a new audience of people who don't play poker yet. And he mm -hmm. loves the game. And I think he saw it this as an opportunity to share that love and to, kind yeah. of, and to grow the game. But one of the things he taught me right away was bankroll management, which is such an essential skill for life. Bankroll management? Yeah. So you have a bankroll. That's your, the amount of money that you have. And you have to figure out how do I budget it? How do I manage it correctly? How do I play within my bankroll so that I don't go broke? Mm -hmm. So that I don't reach you know the end of the line and say oops there went my ten thousand um, dollars and so he actually forced me to move up organically i thought i'd be you know playing with the big boys he was like no you're gonna start off by playing online in these one dollar and five dollar tournaments and then we're gonna move you to live poker but you can't play anything above 35 bucks so he he made me mm. actually start from the bottom and work my way up and the only time i was allowed to move up in stakes was when i started winning enough money to actually finance it wow so so i organically financed the journey from the beginning that's pretty cool yeah amazing now there's this notion i guess of 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 luck right and you've yeah. done a lot of research on this now do most people believe that life happens because of luck or because of their ability and effort and research and hard work? Um, I think it depends where you are and what country you are. I think in the US, most people would say American dream baby, you know, <laughs> skill and hard work. And I, honestly, I, I just think that's total BS. Mm. I think that there's so much luck to life um, and there's so much more, more luck than we'd like to admit to ourselves. Really? I mean, being born right away, I mean, you've won the lottery. Mm -hmm. most, most people, I have a quote in my book from Richard Dawkins that most people are never born, right? So poets greater than Keats and scientists greater than Newton, never born because they didn't win that, that particular combination. Sperm lottery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That sperm and ovarian lottery didn't happen. Um, so we were, we're just lucky to be alive. Then we're lucky that we were born now. And you're, you know, I'm lucky that I was born to my parents with my genetic makeup. I'm lucky that my parents came to the United States, that they left the Soviet Union. I mean, I would have a very different life had they stayed in the Soviet Union. Who knows what would have happened and who knows who I'd be today. So I think things like that, that we take for granted and people are like, oh, well, you know, I, I worked really hard. Sure, that's important. You need to work hard, but you also need to get lucky. Mm. Um, and, should we and be I, should we be ashamed of our 
luck, no matter what level of luck that is? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Really? I think one of the, well, why would you be ashamed of it? It's not that. If someone not, else doesn't get that, that, that ticket, whether it be I was well, born in I America, I was born with this, yeah. or I wasn't, I was able-bodied or I was, had these parents or I wasn't. In, yeah. I think we need to be aware of our luck. I don't think it's something to be ashamed of because it's not something that we did. I think we should only be ashamed of bad choices that mm. we made. That's what we should be ashamed of. If we did something that was ethically or morally compromised, that's where shame comes in. But this is not on us. This was, so one of the things poker teaches you is that you need to focus on what you can control on your decisions, on the things that you can actually take responsibility for that's where shame comes in but you can't be ashamed that you won a hand or that you lost a hand because that's outcome that's mm. luck that actually has nothing to do with you and so you can be aware of it and being aware of it is incredibly important and you can make up for it like for instance if you've gotten you know incredibly lucky you can give back and figure out you know how do i help those who are less lucky who mm -hmm. who didn't actually have those sorts of advantages who lost the hand <laughs> so to speak yeah. but that's not being ashamed of it i think that's actually using it um, in a powerful way i think it's so important to frame these things correctly and to frame them in a positive light rather mm -hmm. than a negative light because that's yeah. what will help us would you say winning a poker tournament is luck then or is it skill hard work and yeah so over the long i mean poker is definitely a game of skill um and over the long term the most skilled players are going to kick the ass of the players who are less skilled and take all of their money mm -hmm. um but in the short term so you, skill comes out over the long term immediately in one hand anyone can get lucky i mean you yeah. can be dealt the best cards in the deck and you had nothing to do with it, but you can win against the best player in the world in one hand or in one game or even in one tournament. And so in the short term, luck is a much greater factor. I think that's true in life too. Mm -hmm. In the short term, there's always a huge luck element, but over the long term, skill becomes much more important. That said, you know, in poker, if you, if you get unlucky, you can still play and enter another tournament. And in, and in life, the bad luck might actually sometimes be so bad that you never get to see the long term. You, know, mm -hmm. you might get a really unlucky draw of the cards you know, if you get sick or something like that. And long term just doesn't happen. Yeah. Now, it seems like there's this idea that people credit luck for good things in their life, but then blame themselves for the bad things. Why do, in general, people do that where it's like, oh, I was just lucky or... Ah, uh, this it's like well, that's we some that? yeah, that's some people. So there's an idea um, in psychology, um, and it comes from the work of Julian Roeder called the locus of control. So mm. where do you think control resides? And there's something called the internal locus. So it's in me, it's internal, and or external locus. So it's external, and it ends up that people have different signatures, different ways that they actually look at the world. So some people, when good things happen, they take all the credit for it. They say, "Yep." I'm good. I deserve this. That was this me. I'm the greatest. Exactly. I I'm worked the my butt off for this. I deserve Ex it. Exactly. And then when something bad happens, they're like, you know what? No one could have predicted this market environment. This happened. That happened. Right. I made all the right decisions. It was nothing to do with me. 
Um, and that's actually quite common. Um, some of my favorite psych studies have group decision making where a group is supposed to do something and then they totally rig the results where your group underperforms and then you're asked to like give a little assessment and every single person in the group says I worked harder and we didn't do as well because of everyone else. Wow. <laughs> so I'm good and all my group members were just terrible. Every person in the group did that. Wow. So that just goes to show how how strong this bias is but as you say there are some people who are actually the opposite there are some people who whenever anything good happens said oh no no i just it's just luck you know i i lucked out and whenever anything bad happens they say that's my fault and that can also be very psychologically damaging because if you're taking all the bad stuff on you and really not accepting credit for any of the good stuff you're going to get depressed right that's actually not a great thing so it sounds then, like we should be we should be working hard on the uh the process and doing our best and trying to make the best decisions every single day and taking yeah. accountability and also recognizing like oh so, a few things fell my way at the right time and exactly. there was some luck involved, but I worked myself to get in this position. Absolutely. I think both things are important. I think a lot of people listen to, to what I'm saying and they're like, oh, so like if, if it's all luck, then why, why do anything? No, I think it's actually an imperative to work really hard and try your hardest mm -hmm. because you want to reclaim agency wherever you can and make the best decisions possible and yeah. I think you can and I think that it's just so important to focus on you focus on the things that you can change that you can control and that you can actually affect and yeah. then and yes be very cognizant of the luck because we also oftentimes we can be conscious of it for ourselves but not for others like we'll you know someone's not doing well and you're like oh that person's lazy like or of course you know and and maybe not like maybe they actually work their butt off just like you but they just didn't get lucky like those things did not come together mm. so i think we need to be i think being aware of just how much luck there is and that we should still be working really really hard i think that that makes us kinder and less judgmental. Yeah, I was uh, a, a buddy of mine, Scooter Braun, who I've interviewed a few times on this mm -hmm. show. I was like, what do you think it was, man, that, that helped you become, you know, one of the most influential people in the music industry and have yeah. the biggest talent in the world and Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande and Demi Lovato and Kanye, you know, all these big names. Yeah. What was it? And he, go, he was like, a lot of it was luck. He goes, to be honest, like being in the right city at the right time and Yes, I showed up to the events. I networked my butt off. I added value to people. I built these relationships. I failed and worked, 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 but I was in the right place and I did the right actions at the right time, which led to, you know, seeing Justin Bieber on the internet. And then, then I took the actions. I reached out to his mom. I did this. I did this. I did this. And it blew up like the timing and everything worked, but yeah. I worked the process as well, yeah. which leads to greater success, which leads to the next thing. And then we could all mess up and make poor decisions, like you said, which could be face unluckiness afterwards, I guess. Like, so. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that's so important. Like everyone who's like, oh, I had that idea. Like I could have created Facebook. Yeah, but you didn't. Right? Right. You didn't execute <laughs> it. You didn't go through years of crap and failures and financial so stress and headaches and yeah. It's all, it's always Facebook. Everyone always yeah, right, right. Uh, I was thinking about Google years ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's always like, what are the big ones? And you're like, yeah, but you didn't. And so, so yes, right. I think it's so right. <laughs> it's so true. You do have to be in the right place at the right time and you do have to, but 
some people might actually be in that same place at the same time, but they didn't do the work. So they don't even see the opportunity. Mm. They don't even realize what they're looking at. So they How can't do we take see opportunity. Preparation. Mm. I think that's working hard. I think that's being open-minded. It's being attentive. I think one of the things that I've learned over the years, both through poker and, and, and just before is, how essential it is to be present and to actually pay attention, actively pay attention throughout our days. Mm. It's so hard. People are like, yeah, yeah, I always pay attention. No, you don't. Our, actually, our brains do not pay attention. Our brains are all over the place. Like how many browser tabs do you have open right now on your computer? Don't answer that question, right? right, right. <laughs> right? Like we, we're pulled in a million different directions and that's how our brains are wired. Our neural wiring. So we have something called the default mode network, which is what's active when we're not doing anything, when we're just kind of sitting and relaxing. And what it's really doing is just scanning the environment. And so the modern world is just basically, it's, it's like junk food to the yeah. default mode network because there's always something going on. And so our, our minds are just wandering constantly. They're like, ooh, ooh, this, ooh, that, ooh, this. Excellent. Fascinating. And what's, that's the default state. What's really hard, what takes a lot of energy is to say, no, I'm going to pay attention to one thing. I'm just going to focus. I'm just going to look at you. And I'm not going to look at anyone else and I'm not going to have anything else going on. I'm not going to be checking my phone. I'm not going to be doing this. I'm not going to be multitasking. I'm actually going to make that conscious choice to be present. It takes so much energy. Most people don't do that, but that's yeah. what, that's what allows you to have enough awareness and open-mindedness to actually spot opportunities and see what's going on. I mean, Maybe Justin Bieber sitting in a cafe and you know singing at an open mic night, and someone is really just busy getting drunk. Someone else is hitting on a girl. Someone else is doing that, and no one's paying attention. Mm. And one person is actually just paying attention to the singer, and is like, "Wow, this person and actually has presence." Seeing the possibility, yes, yes of what could exactly. happen. You know, maybe exactly. it works out great. Maybe it doesn't, but there's something. Yeah. Because if you actually, I think music, talent spotting is a really great example of this because, so I, I, I don't know if you've ever interviewed Brian Koppelman, um, but he's, he's someone I know. Um, he's a writer. Um, he, the show Billions, he's the one who created it yeah, with David great show. It is a great show. The movie Rounders for poker fans. Yeah. That's, that's Brian Koppelman. Um, and he actually started out in the music business and he discovered Tracy Chapman um, at, at a college show. Mm. And so I, I always think of moments like that and think, how many people were at that show? I mean, anyone could have discovered this Anyone person. could have it, went up to the person and said, you've exactly. got talent, let's do something together. Let's exactly. build this, let me help no, you. But most of the time, nobody does. And nobody actually spots the possibility and actually says, this is going to be this is going to be great. And now Brian had some preparation. His, his father's in the music business. So he actually knew kind of what he, he had worked to that moment. So it wasn't like he was a random college student who was like, whoa, this, this is, is cool, dude. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He could have been, but he wasn't. So he right. actually had a lot of the tools. to. He had to some of the skills, the preparation, the, the mentorship, the awareness around exactly. Lingo, exactly. language to exactly. be able to but spot that's, it. But it's such an important thing to realize, like how many people are at those silly shows and yet, and so no one said, so many people say, oh, I knew way back when that, you know, Bob Dylan was going to be huge. No, you didn't. <laughs> like, <Right. you're> just, 
it's also figuring out like there's opportunity everywhere. It's like exactly. I could walk down the street and say, whatever, there's an opportunity to have a restaurant here, but I'm not in the restaurant business. I don't want to be in the restaurant business. Yeah. I, that's not where my passion and my mission lies. And so I think you need to be aware of what do you love in your life? What brings you fulfillment and happiness? Where do your skill sets lie that you could channel the energy into something meaningful or purposeful or financially rewarding for you yes in life I, I, as opposed I completely to agree with that's a that. great artist i'm gonna go sign her no i'm not in the music business this is true however i think you also need to remain open-minded at least um open-minded enough to realize that your life is not always going to go the way that you think it's going to go right so like had i stayed on my tried and true career path i never would have gone into poker. I mean, people thought I was insane. They're like, you're leaving the New Yorker to play poker? Like, are you crazy? Are you for real? Yeah. You sound like Liz to... Gilbert. You're yeah, leaving I... <laughs> to go uh, eat, eat, pray, love? Like, you're Exactly. Crazy. Exactly. And I was like, well, you know what? Yeah, it, it's scaring me. I'm really, I don't know if this is a right, the right decision, but I'm open to it. So let me just see what happens. So I think sometimes we also need to make those leaps if we know why we're doing it. Yeah. Right. So I, I wasn't just randomly doing this. I'm I was using it as a means of channeling sure, sure. For your something mission, else. For your, exactly. Yeah, yeah. For my mission, for writing, for all of these different things. But I do think that sometimes we do need to, we do need to be open to the fact that life never looks like you thought it was going to look like. Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, you thought you'd be a uh, ballerina in New York or something, you know? <laughs> Hey, I thought I'd be on book tour right now, right? Wow, Who right. knew yeah. that we'd be that we'd be in the middle of a pandemic. It's crazy. Like, right now, I was actually supposed to be in Las Vegas during the World Series of Poker. The main event is this week, or no was way. this week? Yes. What is it? Was, How are they doing it right now? Is it like they're not? No way. <laughs> the World Series was canceled because of oh, COVID. Man. So now they actually moved. I thought somewhere. Vegas was open. Nope, not 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 for tournament poker. Oh wow. Yeah, so so the world is very different from what I even thought six months ago I was going to be doing. Right, and you have to be willing to adapt, adapt in all these uh, exactly. times. Now, exactly. I'm, I'm curious, how much money have you won overall? Is that public? I'm curious. Yeah, it is, it is. Um, there's a site called The Hendon Mom, which shows all your tournament winnings, and um, I don't remember the exact number, but it's a little over 300,000. Wow, um, did that include all the money you've lost too, or is that just- No, no, that's just, that's, that's just net. Um, wow. So it doesn't include, I think it should. I actually think it would be really useful. I'd be happy sharing that information, but there's no database where you can be like, oh, well, how many tournaments did this person actually play? Did they actually turn a profit? I wow. will, I'm happy to answer it because I did actually turn a profit. <laughs> sure, it's nice. But, um, but um, I think that that's also important information because otherwise it gives a skewed, very way too rosy picture. Yeah. Now, how, how did you separate going into something with your own money, the decision-making process from your emotions or your social anxiety or your fears or whatever, judgment, insecurities by not being this professional going into this? I think that that's, that was one of my biggest challenges. And one of the things that I actually asked Eric right at the beginning was, how in the world he's able to play the tournaments he plays. So here I was like playing $35 tournaments. Right. Meanti meanwhile, he's playing a $25,000 tournament. The next day, you know, I've moved up to a $50 tournament. I'm, so, I'm pumped. He's playing a $50,000 tournament, a $100,000 tournament. The guys played tournaments with a million dollar buy-in. Wow. I mean, I, 
like I, my jaw just drops and doesn't come back up. <laughs> it just I can't close my mouth at those numbers. I'm just thinking like, what in the world? And he told me something really important. He said, you know, you have to, you have to just forget it. The moment that you buy in, you know, that's, that's done. That's a sunk cost. You've already done that. And now you just have to play. You have to make the best decision. These are just chips. And if you can't do that, that means that you're in too high a stakes situation. If you actually aren't incapable of making that separation, and if it's affecting how you're making decisions, that means that the decision to do this in the first place was a bad one because you're playing with money that you can't afford to lose. Mm. So if you're feeling anxious and sweating, you're in the wrong game. Yes. Um, if you're feeling an anxious and sweating because of the money, because you can't afford to lose that money. Right. And I think and you're making decisions based off that anxiety. Exactly. Like, uh, what if I lose this? Then exactly. that's when you're going to lose. Because now you're not, then you're not making optimal decisions. You are no longer thinking logically. Now you're making decisions based on just emotion and factors that are irrelevant, that are incidental, that are external to the decision. That's not how you make good decisions. You mm. make good decisions by evaluating every, all the information that's present in the situation and by actually going through that and being able to take out the noise. And so when I was playing you know, $35 tournaments, that was okay. The first time I played a $1,000 tournament, I was terrified and it was really, it was really hard. And then you kind of get used to to it and and so you kind of gotta you you kind of gotta feel a little anxiety at first you do to break you the always, barrier you're like ah, i've never done this much and then you're like okay well i lost and it wasn't that bad let me exactly go it again. and it's so funny that you that you phrase it that way because i'm still alive <laughs> yeah one of the one of the mental habits that i've had for as long as i can remember um is before i do anything and i, I don't know if if other people do this too. Um, so I don't know if you do this, for instance, but I always play out the worst case scenario in my head. Yes. Like every single time I'm like, okay, what is like the worst possible thing that can happen? Always, like whenever I do anything that, that scares sure. me. And then after I do that, like if it was, I'm, it's almost like it already happened. I'm like, okay, I could deal with that. And if I already know the worst possible thing, then it actually makes me little bit less anxious yeah. and it makes me okay with it is and that a psychological process or term that sure you it, it, it must be um right. but i, I <laughs> no it actually it is a there is a psychological term for it i don't remember what it is but this is this is but, what i do this is what i learned in public speaking overcoming my fear of speaking in public uh terrified to get up in front of two people and say a sentence because i was always afraid of the way people would view me and their perception of me and looking stupid and not having the right things to say and being worried about that. And as I started to do more and more of my training, I went to Toastmasters and practice every week in front of a, a small group. And I got better and better every week when there was nothing, let's say, on the line except for my own emotional anxiety and stress and worry about this group of people. And as I started to practice speaking more and more and then started getting paid for speaking and then started speaking in front of 500,000, 5,000, 15,000, whatever, after years of this, seven, eight years, I was like, man, why am I still a little nervous when I have a New York Times bestselling book? I have this big show. I've got this audience. Like people want me to come. Like they're excited yeah. to hear. And I called a coach before one of my speeches and I said, I don't understand. Like why do I still get like, like a little anxiety like I go yeah. out there and I and I perform and I do well but I'm always like a little anxious and he said 
because you're so focused on the way you look and the judgment that people are going to have on you as opposed to being in service to the audience no matter what happens. And he did this scenario with me. He goes, what's the worst thing that could happen? Uh, I, I forget my, my speech. Okay, and then what? And then I pee my pants. And then what? And then everyone laughs at me. And then what? And then the lights go out. And then you get booed off stage. And then what? You just keep going down the scenario. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, maybe people laughed at me and I'm embarrassed and it's painful emotionally. But then I get up the next day and I try something else. And you have great material for your next talk. Exactly. <laughs> I can use my, my adversity to my advantage. Yeah, it's so funny. I actually, I still get so nervous before public speaking. I, I do it too, probably not as much as you. Um, but every single time, I always get butterflies in my stomach. Um, I, yeah. will try your, I will try your approach. But it, it happens to me. I mean, I get nervous a lot before big things. You, you get know, nervous I always before just, poker tournaments? Yeah, I do. I do. I always have this. And then once I start playing, it goes away. But What's the big fear? I, I don't know. I'm just, it's, I guess, nervous anticipation um, what if I think, I think there's a fear of letting myself down and letting, letting Eric, my coach, who I still mm. work with and who's become a good friend down, like just letting people down being like, Oh, what if I just, what if I suck today? What if yeah. I'm terrible? Um, how, how have you learned to manage your emotions and triggers under anxiety and stress? So I, this was really interesting because I have a PhD in psychology and I actually worked with Walter Michelle, who people might know as the marshmallow guy. So the guy who created the marshmallow test, you know, can you wait for your second marshmallow? Wow, that's interesting. Um, and not the chubby bunny test. No, no, the marshmallow <laughs> not, test. Not, exactly. <laughs> so the kids who waited for, who were able to wait for, you know, 20 10 minutes, minutes or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. Got an extra one got an extra marshmallow and that ended up predicting how well they did in life in a yes. lot of ways. Delayed gratification is yep. the key to success. It is. It is. So Walter, I was his final grad student. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and so he was an amazing, amazing man. I actually dedicated the book to him. Um, wow. He died. He knew I was working on it, but he unfortunately died before um, oh, I was so finished. Um, it was, it was, he was, he was a great man, a great man, but he gave me so much in terms of that research. Research. That's what I studied in in grad school, and I actually did a lot of studies. So I had no idea what poker was at the time, and I had people play stock market games, which are also it's a similar environment, right? Incomplete yes. information, uncertainty, um, risk, all these different things, and we put them under all these stressful conditions. Like we'd put, you know, these red counters on the on the screen that would flashing start lights flashing <laughs> exactly. And then I started playing online poker and I'm like, holy shit, what was I doing to these people? I was torturing them. This right. is awful because <laughs> I realized how bad it was. But it worked. That's why it worked. It actually mm. put them under these conditions. Um, and so we, we learned a lot about how they made bad decisions and what sorts of techniques they could use to, to get better. Um, and a lot of those were, you know, self-control techniques and distancing techniques. And so I thought I was pretty damn good at this. And then when I got and then into, you played poker. And then I played poker. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I got this covered. Like, this is what I do. This is what I studied. And then I sat down at a poker table. Um, and I ended up working with a mental coach as well because I realized that mm -hmm. um, after I, I only started, the mental coach reached out to me very very early on in my journey. And I kind of dismissed him. I was like, I don't need you. I'm a psychologist. Right. I am <laughs> the mental coach. I am the mental coach. And you know what? Maybe I am to someone else, right. but that but not doesn't to yourself mean, always. but not to myself because one of the things, and I should have known better. I mean, we don't see ourselves objectively. 
we're objective about we're, we can be objective we're emotional about, we're rational we justify exactly as soon as it comes to us we're subjective i mean it's it's almost impossible to be truly objective about yourself because you're you and you're egotistical i mean you mm-hmm. see the world from your perspective there's no way around that and so when i started working with a mental coach he actually forced me to go through like my tournaments, my decision process. And we started and he made me do this. And I was so mad at him. I was like, I hate Excel spreadsheets. Why are you making me fill in all of these different columns? But he'd make me basically do these exercises where I would write down, like actually describe a situation. What was I feeling? Okay, now let's figure out like, how do I react to that? Let's make a plan. The next time something like this happens, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to implement it. It was really hard work. And so we'd have a session and we'd figure out, you know, things that tilted me. There's a wonderful word in poker, tilt, which means that you've gotten emotional and you've let emotions into your decision process. What was that trigger for you? There were lots of triggers for me, but like the most men the one, said sexist comments. Yes, or? that was actually the most. That was the most prevalent one because poker is ninety-seven percent male, and I'd always thought of myself as a very kind of independent, thinking, strong female. You know, I've been successful in other parts of my life, but I didn't realize just how much I'd internalized a lot of the socialization that comes with sexism. You know, mm. that we and that. I, I was making bad decisions because I had internalized a lot of these lessons. Like I wouldn't be as aggressive as I needed to in the spots that I needed to be because I didn't want people to think poorly of me. I wanted them to like me. I wanted them to think I was nice. And I was like, when I realized this was happening, I just, it was a jaw dropping moment again. And I just thought, wow, this is bad. This means that I've done this in real life. I've let people you know, walk all over me probably, wow. and I haven't realized it. I always thought I could stand up for myself. At the poker table, all things like that come out. And you have to, unless you recognize them and change them, you're going to lose money. You're going to actually bleed cash. It affects your bottom line, so you have to start working on it. And then, of course, there were people who were just assholes. And right, right, right. I got Jerks. called everything at the table. Yep. Wow. So these things tilted you or triggered you to be make yep. irrational or not the best decisions. Yes. Um, how did you learn once you studied the game film as an athlete? It's like, okay, let's watch the game film, see what you did wrong. That sounds like what you did with Excel spreadsheets and analyzing it. What was the game plan moving forward when someone would say, oh, whatever, something sexist? Or, yeah. What, what so did, how had- did you then see, oh, heart is fluttering and I'm getting triggered, but what was the shift mentally? I think, so first, the awareness is key, right? That's what they always say. Being aware of the problem is is the is a huge part, not even half the solution. It's more than half the solution. So being, learning to pay attention, not just to other people, but to yourself and to learn to recognize the situations that are likely to trigger you before they do. Because once you're already in the heat of the moment, it's much more difficult. You're, you're to gone. Stop. You're gone. So you need to actually learn to anticipate it. So I'm also someone, so I'll give you an example that's very, very different, but I think that gets to it. So I'm someone who's suffered from migraines my whole life, really awful migraines. Like once my migraine gets started, I'm just incapacitated. I'm out. Like I sometimes for multiple days and it's not pretty. Um, And so I've had to get very, very good at 
noticing the earliest signs that I might be getting a migraine and taking preventative action before that spiral can start. And like I've got, meditation, sleep, or rest? At, yes, at meditation, sleep, rest, all of these things. Advil, a lot of Advil, <laughs> yeah. so I don't, no, seriously, like yeah. painkillers. It's not throbbing, will, yeah. So that you can, so that your head will never get to the point where you need the migraine medication. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a lot of things that I know I need to do. Sometimes I can't do all of them. You know, poker actually really messed with it because mm. you don't have as much control over your sleep schedule and over yes. all of these things. I would still meditate and do yoga every morning so that I could be in my best mindset. But there are not there are certain things that you just can't control. But I got very used to reading my own body because I had to, because the mm. cost of not doing it was so high. Of and reading so, your own body? What does that mean? Well, reading the signs that my body is sending me that you might be getting a migraine. Got now, it. I've learned to know, like, before I get it, you know, five hours before, my head is going to start hurting right here. I'm going to have this, like, slight. Well, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then... This might, and this might happen and that might happen. And most people aren't that actually aware of what their body is telling them all the time from, because we don't yeah. have to be. From a psychological point of view then, we hear this all the time in self-help personal development space of the power of habits and routine, positive habits and routines sure. to, to set yourself up for being prepared under stress and overwhelm. Yeah. And in, in the mornings for me, most of the time, I do a lot of what you do. I think about what's the, what do I want to create today? I think about mm -hmm. my vision first and I focus on my vision, but then I'm also focusing on what if this happens and this happens and I get in an argument with someone I'm here and my girlfriend and I have a disagreement and someone flips me off in the street and, and I go down all those things. I think to myself, how will the best version of myself respond? Yes. How will I show up that will continue to keep me on track towards my vision as opposed to ruining my day and being ruminating and, and angry about that moment of that situation all day because yes. I've done that so many times in the past and I know it doesn't help me. Yeah. So I try to prepare to react in a more positive way. How important yeah. is that from a psychological point of view to have positive routines to set yourself up for when bad things happen? Hugely, hugely. And it's so undervalued because most people think that they'll be able to take care of it when it happens. We no. need to think in advance. Once you're in the situation, it's already too late. Too because late. You're, you're already emotional and you're, and you're too emotional to recognize that you're emotional. To be aware. Everyone tell, so if someone tells you, hey, you're emotional right now, you'll say, no, I'm not. Shut up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and you'll start yelling at them, right? So, so you have to do it. And what you're talking about, um, there's a psychological process that's actually – that has to do with goal attainment and it's called implementation intentions. So mm. I have an intention, how am I going to implement it? And the way that you do it, you know, if you're do going, it's exactly what you do, but the way that you know, we do it in psych studies is you have people actually write if then statements. Mm, so yes. like, if this happens, then I will do this. So what are, example. so what's your, so like, if my intention today, let's do something very simple is to go to the gym. And to work out because it's something I've been working on and, you know, and it's really important. It's one of my goals. So today I really like today, it's really important for me to accomplish this because I already haven't gotten the last four days. So, okay, now think about all the things that could get in my way and that will often prevent me. And how will I react if it starts thundering outside and pouring at rain and the weather is horrible 
and I don't want to go outside, then I will take an umbrella and, you know, do the and walk to the gym and you know take a shower and whatever whatever it is you're going to do like very specifically so no matter what the excuse you're still going to have uh, a way to make it happen exactly so that's why it's an implementation intention how am i going to implement my intention so if i you know if i'm just too lazy and it's so comfortable then i'm going to call my friend ben and i'm going to say ben you're going to come to the gym with me. And I'll tell Ben in advance that he's going to be my gym buddy. And Ben is going to come and pick me up and we're going to go to the gym together. What's more powerful? Someone else holding you accountable, an accountability partner Mm -hmm. on your goal, public accountability, which Mm -hmm. is like, I'm going to do this world on social media and hold me accountable or investing in a coach or accountability or mentor to hold you accountable. Which one is more powerful in psychological terms, you think? It depends on the person. So, so different people are motivated by different things. Overall, usually the most powerful, like statistically speaking, but it might not be for you, um, is public accountability. Mm. So if you actually publicly commit yourself, because then there are lots of people who are, who are watching this and you're failing publicly if you don't do this. Even more powerful is to tie that to a financial outcome that's very unpleasant to you. So what studies have shown is if, for instance, you say, you know, my goal is to go to the gym every week since we're using that three, at least three times a week for one year. And I'm going to publicly commit to this. And if I don't, then I'm going to be donating $10,000 to the NRA or whatever organization you hate. And right. you have to actually take that money at the beginning of the year and put it in escrow with and someone And put it else. in escrow so you know it's... Exactly, so that you can't, you can't change your mind. And wow. if you combine those two things together, so like take the organization that you hate the most and say, I'm going to give a money, an amount of money that actually hurts. It can't be $10. It can't be, you know, right. it can be a hundred of a hundred dollars is really going to hurt for you. Now, but it is has it, to be substantial. It, is it outcome-based in terms of I'm going to go to the gym and lose this amount of weight by this date, or is it process-based? It depends. It depends. It depends on what, what you want to do. But like I said, it's also very personal. And I mean, I think that the process base is much more important yeah. because it's you like can't control showing the up three times a week. Yeah, you might. Exactly. Yeah. You can't control the outcome. Or your you know, goal so might have been too big for your. Exactly. You might not have realized it. And that's, that's different. Um, and so, but for some people having, you know, a, cl- a close friend is enough. Like that's actually someone whose opinion you really care about mm-hmm. and someone whose opinion is, is really important to you. And that might actually be more powerful for some people than public accountability because there are people who don't care what the public thinks and right, they're, right. Like, they just care. It. Yeah, they just care, they care what, what the one person thinks. What the one person thinks and then make sure that that's the one person. So it's important, I think, what we keep coming back to is it's important to do a self-assessment and to realize what's going to motivate you, what's going to work for you. And then to pick the hardest road. You have to pick the, the road that's the hardest that's going to hurt. So if this is the person whose opinion you really care about, then that's the person who you should be accountable for. Don't pick the other person because you're too scared of picking this person. So interesting. Why, why is that important to pick the hard route than the easy route? Because that's what's actually going to motivate you. Because mm. if you pick the easy route, then you, you're picking it to give yourself an out because you know that this person's oh, going to be kind to you. So true. And you can't have an out if you actually want to be accountable. This is so funny. And the gym and the weight is like the easy example because it's something that a lot of people struggle with. And going to the gym is something that 
is hard for a lot of people. But this can be on so many different levels um, and in so many different areas of your life. And it's so powerful. It's huge. I, I mean, I love talking to psychologists like yourself because it, it edifies a lot of things I've done, you know, whether it be instinctively or maybe just by random luck. Yeah. Um, where when I was doing Toastmasters, I remember I knew how much it crippled me to speak in front of an audience of two or 20. Yeah. In high school and college, it crippled me to stand up and read aloud everything. It was just like miserable. And I met actually overcoming another fear of mine, which was salsa dancing. I was <laughs> overcoming this fear of salsa dancing by doing it every day and going out to the clubs three times a week and doing group lessons and private lessons and putting myself in front of a sea of Latino people as the tall white guy standing out and feeling so humiliated and embarrassed, but I was dedicated to my vision of becoming a great salsa dancer. I met a guy who was unbelievable salsa dancer. And I said, what do you do, you know, for your living? And he said, I'm a professional speaker. And I go, really? And I was like, I've always been afraid of speaking. You know, I'd love to learn how you became this so I can understand it. And we went to lunch and uh, he, he told me about Toastmasters. I never heard about it before. He goes, uh -huh. I want you to join Toastmasters next week and do some research and join it and do it every week for a year. And just out of like trusting the guy, I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And what I did, I didn't just find one Toastmasters. I found five different ones that I went to as a guest, like a club that, to teach uh -huh. public speaking. And I went to five different ones within a week. <clears throat> and what happened is there was one that was so intimidating, way beyond all the others. It was like everyone was a professional speaker. Everyone, people had New York Times bestselling books. And it was like these, <laughs> everyone was in suits. And I was like this 24-year-old punk. <laughs> like kid. And I was just like, uh, what am I doing here? But I was like, this is the place I need to be the yeah. place that brings me the most fear, anxiety, and stress. I need to go here because they're going to elevate me quicker than the easier place. Yes. Right? That's so, so important. A lot of people, um, I wrote this piece a number of years ago, um, back when I was still writing regularly for the New Yorker. <laughs> um, and it was about red shirting kindergartners. Um, so do you, do you red actually, shirting. red shirting, so it comes, wait till so it's it six, not five. Exactly. Exactly. So it comes from sports, right? Yes. For, and yeah, yeah. It, um, so you, you wait a year and it was very popular for a long time because your kid's bigger and stronger and does better. And it's actually, it ends up that it's much worse for kids over the wow. long term because what is going to make you stronger? Is it going to be being a weaker, like a smaller fish in a stronger pool where you actually have role models and have to push yourself and have to strive and be the yeah, and best struggle. version of yourself you're and gonna struggle? Because there's going to be people or, smarter and older than you. Exactly. Or, or do you want to be, you know, ahead above everyone else so you never have to learn to work hard at these crucial formative years wow. and, and all of a sudden it actually comes back to bite you because you were always the best. It's not good to be the best. I've, I always tell people that one of the reasons I love being a writer and being a journalist is I get to go to the smartest people in the world and say, tell me what you know, teach me. I, what my goal in life is to always be the dumbest person in any given room. Speak in my language. Because that's how you learn. That's yes. how, I mean, it's so inspiring. I just want to be surrounded by people who are better than I'll ever be. I, exactly. I want to, I want them to shut, you know, I, I want to see what they're doing. I want that to inspire me. I don't want to be surrounded by people who, 
you know, who I can't learn from. I know. And this so is what, this is why I continue to interview for the last seven and a half years, the brightest people in the world. Cause I'm like, wow, I'm just learning so much and then I can implement it. And I love that you said redshirting cause I was a football player in college and um, I was the only freshman to not redshirt at the college I went to out of like, I think 30 or 40 freshmen that came in. Cause I said to the coach part, half of it was my stubborn ego. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I want to play. And you know, part of me was like, ah, I wish I would have redshirted after the fact. Cause I didn't play. I played, but not that much. But what it forced me to do is I was on the field during games with all yeah. the upperclassmen. And I was terrified. I was like, don't mess this up. And I was like, everyone's watching. And, all the freshmen are back at home on away games because yeah. they don't get to travel. So I'm experiencing it as an 18-year-old where most of them are like, okay, we just practice and show up to home games. And I remember because it accelerated my process for the next year. I was a yeah. starter and I was dominating where all these other freshmen that were now with their first year playing, it's like, okay, rookie, you're now in your second year, yeah. but Lewis had experience. We're going to put him in the mix. And it was a powerful experience i mean i i lost some some time maybe playing sure. where sure. i didn't get as much playing time where maybe that other freshman would have but it accelerates the learning curve quicker when you're thrown in the mix it does because you're forced to get better i mean there's just there's no other way around it you you actually have to challenge yourself you have to get better otherwise you're just you're going to be cut you're not going to be able to make it and i think challenging yourself is just it's a very powerful way to grow i mean that said of course there are certain kids who who don't benefit from that yes. so i don't want it like there are always exceptions um and so i'm not saying that this is true of everyone but i think sure it's such an inspiring thing for for a lot of people um and it's so i mean it's also liberate it's so funny because it's very difficult for a lot of people to say, you know, I don't know, I don't understand. For me, it's so liberating. I, I love saying that after I became comfortable with it. I remember the first time when I just started uh, being a writer, when I was kind of in journalism, just starting out, I'd often be tempted to, when someone said, would give me an explanation to be like, uh-huh. And I didn't quite get it. And then I realized I did that once or twice and then i realized i couldn't write the piece because Ooh. i didn't really you didn't, ask, get it. you didn't ask the dumb question i didn't been, ask the dumb question which has been how i've succeeded my whole exactly. career is asking exactly. dumb questions so then so then i realized okay i have to really understand it and i have to be it has to be fine i have to be okay looking stupid in front of all of these smart people that's fine i mean they're the experts i'm not and so then i became it was so liberating and i became very good at saying no, tell me again. I'm sorry. I still don't get it. I don't yes. understand this. And then I would try to explain it back to them. So is this what you're saying? And sometimes they'd say, yes, exactly. And other times they'd say, no, you still don't get it. Here you go. Keep. And then sure. eventually I would get it. And I had experiences, usually the toughest things I've written about, like in, in, not emotionally, but in terms of, I just didn't get the material at all. <laughs> Cause I, you know, I, studied psychology, but I did not study hard science. Like I, mm -hmm. I don't understand a lot of that. And I was writing this piece because I was interested in sleep, but it was very physiological, complicated research into yes. you know, the neuroscience biology, of sleep and, chemistry. Exactly, and biology, biochemistry. And I did like, I couldn't get it. And this interview lasted forever. And I think the woman was getting a little frustrated like, okay. with me. 
Um, and then she actually, I got the nicest note I've ever gotten from her after the piece was published. She said, this is the clearest explanation of my work I've ever read. And wow. I was like, I got it. See, I go. tortured you for hours <laughs> and you hated me. I think but I, at the end, I got it. I think a lot of us, one of my um, goals for my show is to find the complicated things and break it down so that my eight-year-old self can understand it because in a yes. lot of ways I still feel like I'm living in an eight-year-old mind and you know I'm physically bigger but I'm still like ah, I don't know this and I don't get this and I still yeah. ask in a way where I feel like it's very ignorant but it's also like most of the world is ignorant yes and, and we're it's faking it that we know these things or whatever you know and being willing to admit ignorance is actually yeah. already a huge step up and I think exactly. you're so lucky that you're still an eight-year-old because something that we, that I think kids have, and then it's just drummed out of them in school and by society, is just innate curiosity and the willingness to experiment and to tr try different things. And then that's just like, that's just beat out of us by the world because, mm -hmm. you know, we, we don't get rewarded for it. And yeah. people will stop saying, oh, that's a great question. They'll be like, why is your mind wandering? That's not what we're talking about. No, this is the way to do this, not that. It's don't do it this way. Yeah, it's funny. We just brought a, a new member on our team. And I, after a couple of weeks, I checked in with her over email. I was just like, hey, I'm just really appreciative of your hard work. I know you have a lot of onboarding and learning to do, but, you know, keep asking questions and keep showing up with a positive yeah. attitude. And uh, if there's anything I can do, let me know. And she emailed back. She goes, this means a lot to me. You know, I'm so grateful for this team and the culture because in my last company, I wasn't allowed to ask dumb questions. They just expected you to have the answer. Yeah. And, and here I feel comfortable. I can just ask at any time and I'm not shamed for it. And I think that's important to constantly cultivate people in being okay to ask questions. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in certain ways. I'm curious it sounds like you've mastered to a certain point and degree, not fully, how to manage your anxiety and controlling your nerves in poker. Would I say that's safe to say? I mean, I think it's something that I'm constantly working on, but mm -hmm. I'm definitely, I've definitely learned a lot about it. Yeah. How, but I heard you say that you still get nervous when you're speaking in public and this and that, maybe a little more nervous there. How do we translate the skill of nerves and anxiety in one category over into other areas of our life? I think, I think the first, the first step is this kind of metacognitive awareness and of realizing that oh, these skills really do transfer. So there's so many poker players who are amazing at poker and suck at life. Really? They actually, they actually don't transfer any of the skills over because they've never, they don't have metacognitive awareness. They've never actually sat down and- What does metacognitive awareness mean? Thinking about thinking. So thinking okay. about your own mind. So okay. being aware of your own thought process. Got it, got being, it. Being aware. So it's like not cognitive, but metacognitive. Uh -huh. right? You add meta to anything and it sounds smart sounds and, cool. and deep. Yeah. <laughs> um, neuro, let me add neuro in there somewhere. <laughs> neuro, neuropsychology, neurobiology. Yeah, it's like. There we go. There we go. So it's just being aware of your own thinking and having kind of a bird's eye view of yourself. And yes. a lot of poker players don't, don't do that because they don't care. And so they can be amazing decision makers at the table and then go and blow it all at the craps table because – they just, it's a totally or be horrible world. in the relationships or exactly. Whatever. Yes. The, so you have to, yeah. you have to have that awareness. So that's step one is to realize that 
okay, I'm learning important skills and they're actually going to transfer. These aren't poker skills. These are life skills. These are decision-making skills. Then you have to do the exact same thing you did to help in the poker process. And by the way, I still get nervous in poker. So this, mm -hmm. I think you need to realize that learning to manage tilt, learning to manage your emotions, it doesn't mean that your emotions are suddenly going to go away. It just means that you've learned to anticipate them and already anticipate responses so, to them. So let's walk through a scenario. You're about yeah. to go into a, a tournament. I don't know what what's big for you right now. Is it 10,000? Yeah. 20, I'm not yeah, sure what's 10, big. Yeah, 10,000 is big. So you go into a tournament. Maybe it's $20,000 tournament. It's your first time going in. And it's all men. You're the only woman. How do you mentally rehearse the day before, the morning of? All the scenarios that are going to go wrong, what do you say to yourself? Give me like a 60-second <laughs> recap of awareness, preparing, and then do you script in your mind like, okay, when I feel like I'm, I really don't like this person right here, like, okay, I take three breaths, I have a mantra. What is that process for you? Yeah, I actually have noise-canceling headphones, <laughs> which, which is much better than a mantra. <laughs> Just drown them out. <laughs> Drown, sure. drown out the noise. But yeah, so I always, um, this is something that my mental coach taught me to do. And it's, I think it's really powerful. And it works not just in poker. But he said, when you're feeling intimidated, when you're feeling anxious, when you're seeing and th starting to think, oh, I don't belong here. Look at all of these amazing people and, and me. And they are used to playing these tournaments and I'm not. And you have to, re you have to think, this is a person first and a poker player second. Everyone is only human first. And everyone has backstories and everyone started somewhere. And you have no idea when they got lucky. You have no idea if some billionaire decided to spot them the buy-in for their first big break because they thought, ah, oh, this kid's nice. I like his face. Here you go, kid. Take this 20 grand and go play this tournament. That happens, by the way. That happens a lot. And so he said, you don't know all of those things about them. So don't assume you are making so many assumptions when you look at people and when you're intimidated by them, you are assuming that, oh, this person is kind of this perfect decision maker. They're so much better than I am in this and that and that. But you can't instead realize this is just a person. And this is a person with issues, and this is a person with problems, and this is a person who has all this stuff going on. And humanizing them and actually bringing it down does so much to relieve that anxiety and to actually make you dread it less because you realize, oh, well, okay, sure, they're probably good, but they also got lucky. And so if I don't do well today, that also doesn't mean that I'm horrible. That also, that might mean, you know, I got unlucky too. So a lot of things have to come together. And it's also taking a little bit of the pressure off of, your, off of yourself because a lot of anxiety comes from performance anxiety and from pressure right. that you're putting on yourself that, oh, what if I fail? He says, well, reframe it. It's not failure, right? It's you've challenged yourself to do something that scares you to kind of go to this next level. You've already succeeded if you can succeed in conquering your nerves enough to do this because you've challenged yourself to do this. So now the outcome doesn't matter, right? Mm. Divorce yourself from the outcome. Obviously, what if nice the to outcome well. matters to you? I want to win. I want to write this New York Times bestselling book. So I that can't, you can't do that. You can't really? do that. No, so what should you the can't. Out 
What should you be committed to? You can't, to you can't be not. focused. So this goes back to our, to our question earlier on about weight loss. You can't, your goal cannot be the outcome. Your goal has to be the process because wow. you do not control the outcome. The outcome, that's luck. That's variance. That's wow. chance. That's noise. What's in, within you to control is the process. What you're there to do is to make the best decisions you possibly can. If you do that, you've won you've accomplished your goal, whether or not you actually win. If you don't do that, if you end up making horrible decisions and lucking out, you played badly and you just got really, really lucky. You should not be proud of that. Mm. So you might've gotten the outcome, but your process is flawed, which means over the long term, you're actually going to give lose. all that money back. Right. Because you have the wrong you should, process. You should stop gambling or not gambling. <laughs> you should stop playing poker. Exactly. At that time. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Take the money and run. Because Take it and run and never play again because you'll lose it all. And then you'll exactly. keep losing to try to get it back. Exactly. Exactly. So your goal cannot be the outcome. Your goal has to be the process. And once you realize that, you say, wow, I actually, these are things that are within me to control. So it's funny. You say New York Times bestselling book. I was, you know, to be very honest, I, I was really hoping that this new book would be a bestseller. My last two books were New York Times bestsellers. I didn't know that we'd be in the middle of a pandemic and in the middle of this national, you know, movement, race movement, and all of these things would and be financial happening and, and financial crisis and all of these things would happen when my book came out. So the biggest bluff sold more copies in its first book in its first week than either of my previous books. Both of those made the New York Times bestseller list. This one did not. Because so wait, this one sold more copies. You said yes, in the first two than weeks, the other, but it didn't make the list because wow. why is that? Because the backlist was so strong on it because uh -huh. there are so many books that came out over the last 10 years that are now on the list because of all of these different things. Right, 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 right. Of course. So, this, the, so the sales are So it's not different. based on how the quality of your work. It's not based it's on the not process. It's not based on any of that. So it's, I actually still, I think it's that this bad, is it's the, bad timing for your goal. Exactly. And so that can't, that can't be my goal. Oh, my wow. goal is to write the best book I can. And I think I did. I think this is actually the best book I've ever written. I think it's better than my other two books. And so luck plays a lot into our life is what I'm hearing you say. Exactly. But I can't, I can, I could control the process. I could control what I did. I mean, I worked really hard. I tried to do as much promotion as I could. You know, I did what I could, but I can't control ultimately what's going to happen. I can't control the outcome. So that can't be my goal. Wow. My goal can't be to write a New York Times bestselling book. My goal has to be to write the best book I possibly can to write a book that people that will give something to people. Um, and I hope I've done that. Um, mm -hmm. Even though, you know, obviously it would have been nice, but that's not, right. that's not something I can or can't do. Right. What did you learn about social and human dynamics uh, with reading emotion and body language, whether it be movements, fidgeting, hand gestures, eyes, what was your process? And what do you what do you do now to master the game of human dynamics? I think that poker teaches you to really pay attention to how people act and how they deviate from that. So what's someone's baseline? What do they normally act like? And what's their usual demeanor? How much do they talk? How do they sit? What's their body language? And when does it change? And what does that mean? So you have to start noticing kind of the have the baseline samples and notice the deviations from it, which means you're really paying attention closely to someone. You have to pay attention to everyone all the time. Yes. Though. And then you also realize that 
most people are really, really good at controlling their faces. So that's just a waste of time. Almost everyone has a pretty good poker face because we're used to it. We're used to controlling our faces. But other parts of the body, we don't control nearly as much. So one of the things that I actually learned that's in poker, but it actually, so because you played football, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. Um, so it turns out that most of the tells, the physical tells are in the hands. Yes. So there's actually a lot of research now that's been done um, that shows that if people are looking at the hands of poker players only, even people who know nothing about poker are able to say with better than chance accuracy who has a strong hand and who doesn't because we don't control our pulse and our, you know, the way that we normally gesture our hands, we, we don't realize just how much our hands give away. The reason I said you'd get a kick out of this is there's actually parallel work that was done in rugby that mm. some, so people who are spectators, even people who don't know anything about rugby by looking at at a, a player's hands can actually predict the direction of the ball. Um, and it's wow. so cool. And so I'm assuming that if it's true in rugby, it's probably true in football too. You the read towels for sure. I mean, you can read towels based on like the wide receiver, based on their hand placement. If yeah. Okay. You know, it's a pass or if it's a run, if it's down, yeah. like you can tell it's, I think I saw in this, there's a, a friend of mine, Vanessa Edwards. She has a site called science of people where she studies mm -hmm. like the, the science of human behavior. And one of her, studies, I don't know if it was her study or, or psychological study she found, she said like the first thing that, one of the first things we look at as human beings when we're walking down the street is actually not the eyes, but it's like the hands for safety to make yeah. sure there's nothing in the hands. I don't know if it's, maybe I'm off in some way there, but it's like, we'll quickly like, it's just a brief second, like a glance down at the hands. I, I don't know if it's women do that for men or men do that for women or what that is, but I remember hearing that. Yep. And sometimes looking at the faces actually give you the wrong signals. Right, like so, the con man book that you write, yes. Oh, yep, that was, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So because don't look at the face for the tells. No, no, because you also, you get the wrong information. So people read a lot of things into faces that they shouldn't. Like we have subconscious stuff, like, the jawline, someone's eyebrows, you know, someone's nose, those are signs of, there can be signs of trustworthiness that, you know, evolutionarily, for some reason, we think, oh, this is a trustworthy face. We make this judgment in milliseconds, mm. fractions of a second, and they oftentimes have nothing to do with reality. There's some fascinating research um, in Princeton, where this guy, Alexander Todorov, um, is able to tell how someone is going to vote basically what candidate is going to win an election for local elections based on doing scans of people and just get, showing them faces and giving them like ability judgments that they, that they saw within fractions of seconds. If you tell people, do you realize that the more likable candidate based on just facial structure when you don't know anything about the candidate is, is the person you voted for? Really? They'll, they'll laugh facial at Facial structure. Way, yeah. So the way that he does wow. it is actually like, so you, might, so you might be so you might it doesn't matter how good of a politician you are or how eloquent you are. Sometimes the luck is how your face is shaped. Exactly. Just Shut and, up. and your height really? and all. Yes, for sure. So the way wow. that he actually was able to do it is he did local elections that had already happened, but where people didn't recognize the candidate. So if it was like a local Virginia election, you know, he would do the study in you know, California or whatnot. So not, wow. not national politicians. And he was able to predict the outcomes of those elections. No way. Just based on shape of face or like facial yeah, expression? Yeah, just exactly. Just, 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 a, just a quick, quick little scan of the face. And wow. 
and people don't realize that they're using these cues. And of course, in real life, it doesn't always work that way because we have other cues as well, but it's crazy and it's really important to know that we have such strong subconscious biases. Yeah, I love the book, Influence. Um, yeah, his, Robert Cialdini. Yeah, Robert Cialdini, it's amazing. I think it's the seven seven cues of influence, yeah. like liking, yeah. social. Um, he's great. He's, social, a, he's a wonderful psychologist. Social proof, liking, all these different things. It's really powerful. Um, and it's what it's the book a lot of online marketers have used for years on how yep. to persuade people to buy or to opt in for something. Yeah. It's like giving them a free gift. You know, all these different things is what marketers use to get people to buy into their their products or services. Absolutely. All absolutely. big brands do this, you know, in, in real life. Uh, I just do you know what the Bible of con artists is? As I found out that book influence. No, Dale oh. Carnegie's how to win friends oh, and influence people. <laughs> I, I guess what they study that book. Yeah. A lot of con artists, they, they read that book and they think it's just the They're best so thing ever. good at getting people to like them and trust them. Right. Yep, exactly. Wow. This is fascinating stuff. I have so many other questions for you, but I want to be respectful of time and, and get to the final few questions. I want to, before I ask the final few questions, I want to make sure everyone goes and checks out this book. Do you have it on audiobook any chance also? Yeah, I did my own audiobook. Amazing. I know how hard that is. I've done a couple of those. Uh, the biggest bluff, how I learned to pay attention, master myself, and win. Make sure you check this out. Uh, really powerful book and some, some crazy stories in there as well. Um, you're not that active that I've seen on social media, but where should we follow you if you're I'm going to be on there more? <laughs> Um, I'm most, I think I'm the most active probably on Twitter um, okay. and also on Instagram. So on Twitter, I'm at mkonnikova and on Instagram, I'm girl named Maria, but girl with no I because somebody had already stolen girl named Maria with an I. So GRL yeah. named Maria. Okay, cool. Um, and if, if, if you can teach me how to influence the person with the I to give up that screen name to me, I will tell be very you what, grateful. I, I've gotten three... Uh, Instagram accounts to give them uh, over to me. Three big names, actually. Um, and I've, I haven't been able to influence the person with Lewis. Ah, oh, so, at Lewis. That, yeah. that, would be, that would be something. But I do have at Lewis on TikTok. So, you know, nice. something there. Something there. Um, nice. So make sure, we, make sure we go follow you. We got the book is on Audible, I'm assuming. And yep. um, it's on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. Check this book out. I think it's going to really help you. For me, I'm a, a fascinated by human dynamics and, and uh, social dynamics and psychology. I, I think I would have loved to have studied this in school, but I just try to find brilliant people like yourself and try to use what I can learn. A um, couple of final questions for you. This one is a question I ask everyone at the end of my interview. It's called The Three Truths. Okay. So I'd like you for to imagine for a moment a hypothetical situation where it's many, many years away, but it's your last day on earth and you can live as old as you want to be. But at one point you got to turn the lights off and go to the next place. And you have accomplished every dream you can think of, or at least you've accomplished every good decision. Maybe the outcomes didn't happen, but you <laughs> accomplished every good decision making process. And you've written many books and done other things you want to do. They've all come true. But for whatever reason, you got to take all of your written work and audio and video content with you to the next place so no one has access to it anymore. And you get to leave behind three things you know to be true from all your lessons in life that you would share with <laughs> us. The three biggest lessons you've learned that you would want us to know about how to live a better life. What would you say are your three truths? 
Um, let's see. People matter the most. I think that would be number one. Um, and that's, I think, where, where you really want to focus your time because everything else you can, everything else is replaceable, but your, your family, your friendships, your relationships, I think that that's the single most important thing. And too many people realize that too late and when it's no longer possible to have a meaningful relationship. And so I think the earlier that you can do it, the, the better. Yeah. Um, and why. this, yep. So the second one is actually related to what we were talking about with, uh, with decision-making. It's the experience is not the destination. So, so focus on the experience and do things for the experience and be motivated by that because that's also what you're going to remember and that's what you can control. And I think that that's, those are the things that you can do in your life to make it more meaningful and also to make yourself happier. Because if you focus too much on the destination, on the outcome, then you're never going to be satisfied. And I think it's just so important to be in the now, be in the present mm -hmm. and to just focus on, on that. I think that it, these are these things are all related and, and interconnected. Yeah. But I think that's really important. And three, never do things because you think that they're going to be useful. Do things because you care and because you're passionate about it and because you think that it's important intrinsically to do. I think so many people make poor decisions because they say, oh, well, I'm going to study this because it's going to be the useful career path. If, how will I do that? I don't want to learn about this. How is it going to be useful? They always want to know how is this going to be useful? Well, you never know what the future holds and you never know what's going to be useful or not. And you never know how your life is going to work out. So just relax. You can't plan for that. And living your life by the useful principle is not going to is not going to lead to the results you think. The people who are the best poker players aren't the ones who are motivated by money. They're the ones who are motivated by love of the game, by making good decisions, by actually, they're, they're fascinated by the thought process. The guys who want to get rich are the guys whose names you forget and who end up going broke. And so I, I think that that's the better motivation for everything. You know, try to, try to live to, to, be better to better yourself to leave the world a better place and not because you think that something's going to have some sort of use or utility don't mm. try to put that sort of calculation on it mm. it's great coming from an analyzer yourself from russia <laughs> i like that maria i want to acknowledge you for a moment before i ask you the final question i want to acknowledge you for your ability to uh risk and go out on the you know what we call the skinny branches and try something <laughs> new when you had this amazing career and you know, you're making good money and you were studying the things you wanted and writing uh, for the New Yorker and all these different things were happening. But you said, you know what, I'm gonna try an experiment. I wanna go try this thing and who knows if it's gonna work or not, but I'm gonna go do it. So I acknowledge you for the risk taking, for your constant curiosity and human behavior and for, for showing up powerfully during this interview. It means a lot Thank to you. me. Um, well, of course, yeah. My, my final question for you, Maria, is what is your definition of greatness? <laughs> My definition of greatness is someone who leaves the world a better place than they found it and leaves the situation and leaves the people who interact with them better than they found them. Maria Konnikova, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Louis. This has been an absolute pleasure. What a fun interview and so different from anyone else. Yeah, thank you. 
Thank you, my friends, so much for listening to this episode. It means the world to me that you continue to show up for yourself and invest in yourself with powerful information and tools to help you take your life to the next level. And I'm so grateful that you're part of this School of Greatness community. We continue to reach millions of people around the world every single week. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please click on that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now and leave us a five-star rating and review to help us spread the message to more people. And you can really make an impact on someone's life today. Just think about one or two people that you care about. Copy and paste this link wherever you're listening to this podcast and send them a link to check this out to help them improve their life as well and give them tools to take their life to the next level. Also, you can just go right to the show notes page at lewishouse.com slash 985 for more resources and information back on the page there for this full episode. And if you want inspirational messages from me, like thousands of people do every single week, text me the word podcast to 614-350-3960. And I want to leave you with a quote from Jack London. Life is not always a matter of holding good cards, but sometimes playing a poor hand well. Ooh, I just got the chills on that one because I know so many of you have not been dealt great cards. At birth, you haven't been dealt great cards at high school, college, and your career, and you've always had to learn how to play a poor hand well. I feel like that's been my entire life. How do I make the most of the cards I've been dealt so that you become the card dealer at some point? That's what this is all about. And if you haven't been reminded lately, you matter. You are loved, and you are worth it. I'm so grateful for you. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.